This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Yeah, overall, and this was about a two-year process from idea to finally out in the market and package, we did a lot of brewing. Jesse Hayes is 99.5% awesome and 0.5% ABV. This week on the show, the story behind the development of Just the Hayes, Sam Adams' first non-alcoholic beer. Hi, my name is Aaron Bottens. I am the brewing manager at Samuel Adams Boston Beer, and I'm out of Boston. How long did it take to develop Just the Hayes? What was the timeline from idea to first release? Uh, Yeah, Just the Haze, we worked on that project for almost two years, maybe, or maybe even a little longer than two years. It was pretty involved um, to go from concept to final package. I can imagine. And that is that probably, that's probably one of your longer timelines for, for most products, right? I, I would, I would guess that this is probably one of the more complex ones. Yeah. Com- complexity for sure. Um, you know, there's so much equipment and, uh, different processes that we had to learn to really make this beer. It's completely different from any other style that we've developed before, but we have spent multiple years developing styles. We spent quite a bit of time with Rebel IPA development, with uh, Wicked Hazy development. So the, the timeline isn't necessarily new. I think it was all of the processes that we had to learn. Talk about the motivation behind this project. Well, I think everybody's noticed how low-alk and non-alk options are becoming more popular. There's something to be said about people wanting to live a healthier lifestyle, maybe not drink as much or reduce, reduce drinking. Maybe folks are choosing to not drink at all. Um, so the, that category is growing in the U.S. pretty rapidly. I think it's actually the fastest category within craft right now. 
So there was an opportunity there. uh, But we also kind of refer back to our times when we would go back to Europe for hop selection or other research trips. And there's just so many options for non-alk beer. And we kind of fell in love with that over there and watched the trends, noticed how that the non-alk styles got better and better over the years as technology improved and just decided to take a stab at it. And here we are. After the idea comes the research and concept testing, explain how that works at Boston Beer. The concept testing is somewhat new uh, to us. We've we started doing that within, I would say, like the last five years. And it really helped us with this project in particular because we just didn't really know much about NA and like what what consumers, what drinkers are looking for. So having a idea from them, from drinkers, made it made our jobs a lot easier. It uh, reduced the field, reduced the target, and we were able to focus in on two different concepts, but really just shoot for one. Okay, I guess talk about what that research uncovered. What what exact what direction did it point you towards? So it pointed us to um, two real directions. Here we could we knew we wanted to make an IPA. Uh, it is just whether it wanted we wanted it to be fruity or hoppy. Uh, our wicked hazy styles had been doing really well, so a hazy IPA seemed to fit in within that uh, box. So drinkers really wanted something that was citrusy, have the earthy grassy notes that you can sometimes get from uh, IPAs and fruity net, that, that fruity notes. And a lot of it was around tropical and citrus. Um, so it really helped kind of drive that decision. We've already talked about the various methods for producing non-alcoholic beer on past episodes. For example, episode 172 with Justin McKellar, and more recently, episode 266 with Mitch Steele. So we're definitely not going to rehash all of that. But I do want to hear about your journey of deciding which approach to take. Walk us through that. It was a pretty long uh, walk. I'll put it that way. Um, we did a lot of research mo- again, mostly in Europe, cause this is where they're the most popular. We worked with some partners in Germany, uh, both with Krohn's and Weinstephan, um, and kind of narrowed in on limited fermentation and de-alk, uh, as two different processes that we were interested in. Uh, a lot of this was narrowed down through just tasting, finding, uh, market, examples, tasting, finding what we liked, making some assumptions based on analysis, uh, based on like just what we know uh, through, our, through our industry connections, and landed on those two processes. So when we were researching how we wanted to make these beers, what, what kind of methods we wanted to use, we really were looking at two categories both flavor quality and capital. That's always going to be a big thing when you're looking to produce beer on a larger scale. You didn't have an unlimited budget, huh? No, not surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and when we looked at all these processes, they kind of break down into two categories. So we've got biological and physical. Um, Thinking about flavor quality, biological 
standing alone uh, is pretty wordy, a little grassy. Uh, there's a lot of that typical beer profile that you wouldn't get. Uh, and then when you look at physical methods, so things like um, distillation or rectification, uh, it just gets watery and thin and can be cooked, you know, like that cooked flavor when a beer has been sitting on a shelf for forever. Um, and can also have some acidic quality to it. That's just not appealing. It's just like, there's no right answer with any one process is that that's basically where we landed we needed to find this magic blend of a few different processes to make the best beer that we could now that doesn't sound like uh maybe something that was friendly to the budget to do it more than one different way how did the capital side of it work out i mean um you know talk about sort of the pros and cons of the different approaches there sure yeah bi- i mean biological is easy if you're an operating brewery you have 90% of what you need. It's a fermenter, a brew house, and yeast. The The yeast is going to be the more tricky thing to figure out. There's a bunch of different strains that you can use. Uh, most of them are maltose negative, so they can't uh, convert anything bigger than glucose and ferment that. Um, and then when you get into the, to the physical side, that's definitely more expensive, right? Like you're looking at utilities, you're looking at space, just cost of the equipment alone. Um, you know, we had to, uh, we actually rented a, uh, skid, a, a dealkalizing skid and had like our utilities weren't enough for it. We had to put in some extra utilities just for the skid. So it was a pretty big ordeal for us at our brewery. And uh, I'm talking about, um, the small brewery here in Boston that we use for research and development. Um, and, but this is, this is also what we're here for. So this, it was kind of old hat for us to take on this big project and try to figure it out. It sounds like you, uh, you decided to, that you wanted to, to land in a place where you were utilizing the best of both worlds. Then um, tell us more about what that looked like. So the best of both worlds for us was, living within that both physical and biological uh, areas. And so limited fermentation using a maltase negative yeast strain and then uh, rectification or dealkalization as a physical component uh, really is what we landed on to make the best beer. You mentioned some some research partners a minute ago. Uh, talk about the relationship with your your research partners and, and and what exactly they did for you. Yeah, we so we worked with a few different partners, uh, both Weinstefen and Crohn's, to really kind of learn how to brew, how to brew these beers. We knew we wanted to do limited fermentation. We knew we wanted to do dealkalization, but what do those processes do? to the final product they have way more experience with this than than we did at that time um so we really just wanted some information and reached out went over uh went over to germany and um had a good conversation we brewed some beers with them uh we dealkalized some beer as well and shipped all of that back to to boston to um do some further work on the bench and figure out like what ratios look like. Is this a recipe that we want to move forward with? Are we ready to um, invest in some of this equipment on our own? And 
take the next step. Talk about the different yeast strains that you evaluated. We Part of this journey was with the yeast that we're going to use for the limited fermentation. And we had a trial um, looking at eight different strains. Uh, these are from uh, yeast banks in Germany, both from the VLB and Weinstephan. Um, yeah, I would say that the, the main ones to call out are uh, Ludwigi, Dariensis, and we also had a Picchia yeast that was interesting and a Torula Spora Delbrucii that was also pretty interesting that we worked with. These um, came in slants or small pitch- pitchable quantities, and we grew those up uh, to pitch a 14-gallon fermenter out of our uh, research brewery. And then we just did some sensory evaluation on them. Um, there were eight total, and some of them were great. Some of them were not so great. And looking at sensory and then also our cell growth and extract and maturation, we just ranked everything. Um, so you just like, uh, I assume, did you just throw some out because they just didn't perform in terms of like, hey, they just didn't grow the way they needed to and things like that? Yeah, yeah. There was a, there were two rounds of brewing with this one. Um, and the first round we called half the field. So we landed on four that we wanted to move forward with and just took the, the other four out and we haven't used those since. So uh, what can you tell us about the different types of flavors that you observed during that process? I mean, did you, <laughs> was there some really wacky stuff or was it all like kind of the same? It, it, some of it was kind of wacky for sure. Uh, one of them, I can't remember which one it was, had like a really olive, like savory green olive note mm, to it. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we, we said no no to that one. Um, but there were, there were some that were really good. It would like taste really good, but the fermentation wasn't great or the cell growth wasn't great. So those, those ones also got knocked out. Okay. Um, what can you tell us about the strain that you landed on? So we landed on Ludwigi, um, and that is a pretty popular strain to make what we would call limited firm beer, limited fermentation. Um, it's a really funky looking yeast strain. Um, the first time I looked at it through a microscope, I was like, what, what is this thing? Cause they, they look kind of like, um, like bowling ball pins. Like bowling <laughs> pins. Uh, so it, <laughs> I was like, this is not yeast. We shouldn't be using this. I don't know what this is, but no, it is. Um, and it, it ferments really quickly to a super low ABV. As long as you have your mashing schedule. Um, where you need it to be to, to be restricting glucose formation. Um, they, we, we see our fermentations complete within 48 hours um, to a pretty low ABV. All right. Well, that's a great segue. Back on episode 266 with Mitch Steele, he mentioned more than once the importance of approaching wort fermentability differently in the brew house for non-alcoholic products. Uh, so it sounds like that was pretty important for you as well, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those mind shifts you have to make when you're looking at uh, making NA is that, you know, we're typically in the business of making alcohol, right? And now we're not, we don't want that. So how do we not only look at the right ingredients, but treat those ingredients? Um, and the mash is 
a huge component of that. Uh, made some. I, I originally made some assumptions that we'd just be able to like do a normal mash and off we go, and then have this low ABV beer because this yeast strain doesn't ferment everything. Uh, right. That was wrong. <laughs> Not right. Uh, and learned that pretty quickly. And so the next set of trials that we had to look at in in the, this development was how do we mash for this and limit these sugars? Because if you're if you're a brewery that's looking to create NA and produce NA just by limited fermentation, it's super easy to end up over ABV spec or to the point where you would have to dilute so much with water you're just you're i mean you're diluting the quality or the flavor quality of your beer right yeah yeah so it's all about remembering where your enzymes work and what temperature ranges they work at to limit that um simple sugar formation and we did a lot of work around this there's a lot of brewing this is probably the, the the majority of the brewing towards this development was in the mash schedule Cool. Uh, All right. Well, tell us more about that. Talk about how you how you determine the right mashing process for your malt and for your brewery. Yeah, we we did a, quite a few trials. We looked at uh, the begin in the beginning. We had I think about six different uh, mash temperatures and just trying to do a single infusion mash. So mashing in hot, um, ranging at from like one sixty two all the way up to one seventy three. And just holding those mashes until we hit iodine normal, um, and it you know it, it could take up to an hour depending on which uh, temperature we were at, or even longer. I remember some taking an hour and a half to to, to almost two hours. And so it was a lot of we used a lot of iodine. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever done so many iodine checks in a single brew before, um, but we would. Once we hit that iodine normal, we'd uh, send it to the louder ton and run off and then collect the wort for analysis. And we would check um, the fermentations for sugars uh, until they were finished too. Just to double check to make sure that we're only fermenting DP1 instead of DP2 sugars. What's, which what's is, DP1 and DP2? Tell us what that means. So DP1 is, it, that's like the um, the categorization that you would use in a uh, LC, LCMS for liquid chromatography. So DP1 is glucose. Okay. Uh, glucose fructose. Uh, DP2 is sucrose and maltose. So those are the sugars that you don't want Ludwigi or maltase negative strains cannot ferment those so you really want high dp2 you want limited dp1 okay all right um and it sounds like um so you did quite a lot of um analysis on this work to to really determine what that sugar profile looked like from these different nash schedules do i have that right yeah yeah we did a quite a bit of work a lot of analysis um we have a we have a lab partner um that we work with to uh, do all this analysis. Okay. And was that mostly like HPLC or what, what kind of work were they doing? Yeah. HPLC. All right. Give us a little bit more insight on those mash temperatures and maybe talk about sort of what happened when you tried mashing at the high end or the low end of the spectrum and so on. 
what we found was that lower temperatures, you know, of course you don't want to be down in the 150 range. Right. That's where like all of your, make all of, of your of enzymes. And everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we really focused in on 160 and above. Uh, it did feel really strange to be mashing in over 170 because that's normally our mash off temperature. Right. But surprisingly, that's where you want to be. Uh, at least what we found with our with our two row. You know, this isn't to say that these temperatures are going to work for everyone, right? We have um, a custom pale blend that we use for all of our styles, um, and this is the temperature that works for us. So we 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 mash in at a 168 and we hold at 168 for an hour. So were you using, so it sounds like you were using normal malt, like your standard malt that you're using for your other beers. You didn't use any kind of, you know, special malt or anything. Yeah. Yeah. This is all standard malt. Uh, it didn't like the, the complexity of bringing in a new base malt. Yeah. Is right. <laughs> not on the table. Yeah. Not on the table. Yeah. Coming up. There's also a process built in with this where you capture what's called the aroma water. I would drink that right off the tank. It's, it is so good. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. This episode is brought to you by RAR Malting Company, celebrating 175 years of the malt of reputation. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. Now offering Dextrin Malt to help you boost mouthfeel and haze in your IPA or to show off a jiggly foam stand on a pills. Available exclusively at bsgcraftbrewing.com. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from Brew Monitor, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Would you like to increase yield and tank turns without compromising quality? Are you tired of high DO and temperature pickup, as well as high power consumption from your old centrifuge? Founded in 1878, Alpha Laval is the original centrifugal separator innovator. Alpha Laval's unique and innovative bottom-fed fully hermetic separators are the most gentle way to centrifuge your beer and maintain its desired flavor and aroma profile. With a strong legacy in brewery applications, they have the technology and expertise to help you improve efficiency and yield without compromising quality. Learn more at alphalaval.us slash MBAA.
And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets at Delta Beer Lab in Madison, January 19th. Don't miss the Barley Lipids Impact on Brewing Process and Beer Quality webinar, January 24th. The 2023 District Ontario Conference at the Pillar and Post Inn begins January 25th. District Mid-South meets at Hutton & Smith Brewing Company in Chattanooga, January 28th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Blackstack Brewing, February 23rd. The multi-district event known as the Eastern Technical Conference is back March 24th and 25th at the Atlantic Sands Hotel and Conference Center in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. We've had plenty of episodes on the topic of hop creep and how hop enzymes can change the sugar profile and fermentability of beer. Is just the haze dry hopped? And if so, was that a complicating factor? It is dry hopped. Uh, and it's not too much of a complicating factor with this one. Uh, the Ludwigi doesn't seem interested. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> to, 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 to like put it really easily. Uh, they, it just, the, it, what's kind of amazing about this uh, limited fermentation is how hoppy it is, how tropical it is with very low alcohol formation from that. Mm-hmm. It's it's very reminiscent of a uh, New England style with that late firm dry hopping um, without that alcohol gain. You said that uh, you said that you landed on you know an approach that was a combination of arrested fermentation and dealkalization. Uh, let's hear about the dealk side of the process and the trials you ran to get what you wanted there. Yeah, the <laughs> the dealking was a that was an adventure. Um, so we rented a skid to help with our development work because I mean, it, part of this is like we know we're going to make this investment in this equipment. Um, the lead time though is forever long. So how are we going to develop without a skid? Right. <laughs> so um, we rented a, a five hectoliter size, which is uh, this is a little oversized for what our brewery here in Boston can uh, like produce beer for. Yeah, cause I, I, haven't, I haven't been there in a few years, but it, it's not massive. What, what size is uh, the brew house at, at, in Boston? What is it like? I don't know. I want to say like 15 barrels or something. It's a 10 barrel. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's small. Um, so what we, what we did, so we brought this skid in and not to make it any more complicated, but this came in, in, February of 2020 in pieces, right? From, from Germany. And, um, you know, there, there's a little blip in 2020 that you might remember, uh, <laughs> that made working really difficult. Um, so this was 
this was me and a couple other folks within the company um, and our contractors putting this together during that time um, under like pretty strict quarantine. So that was this was this is our COVID. I like to call this my COVID project. There, um, there are worse projects to have during COVID. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some people like making beer or, or bread, like baking bread. I was dealking beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this, so this this was pretty key for us. Uh, we would actually ship beer up in mobile tanks from our Pennsylvania brewery. That's how we were able to supply it, um, and. We really just wanted to see what would happen uh, by running some of our core beers through it. Like, how does how does a hoppy beer interact on a Dialk skid? How does a lager interact on this skid? Um, how can we tweak our parameters with this technique to like collect something that it doesn't taste cooked, doesn't taste, you know, frankly, kind of terrible. Um, yeah. it's. It's not great on its own, but it has a lot of those components that are not in a limited firm beer. Um, you get more, a little bit more body out of it because it's typically higher gravity um, as a full strength beer. But once you remove that alcohol, you know you still get some of that sugar to add back. So you, you're getting some of that body. You're getting some of that um, beery, fully fermented character uh that you don't get from the limited firm talk about quality and some of the challenges that you had to deal with in your process yeah quality is a big one with this uh, and this is a, a a big learning for all of us here um you know the issue that we run into with non-alcoholic zero zero or even some low alk low alcohol beers so we don't have the protection that we normally do. Um, you know, we rely on our hops, we rely on our alcohol to give us layers of protection. Um, foodborne pathogens can survive in non-alc beer, but we've found, and there's some papers out there in the world about this too, is that if as long as your pH is below 4.2, you're in a much better situation to. Um, for for food pa- foodborne pathogens to not survive, so like we can we can work through that. Tunnel pasturation is a huge thing when it comes to um, canning and producing this. We don't do draft at all. Um, we tried it. We thought it might be a good idea, but we just found that the quality didn't stand up. Talk about what it takes to hit that pH because. Um, I assume you have to do some adjusting because you're not going to get the production of organic acids that you would get in a normal fermentation, right? Totally. Uh, we, we adjust our pH down, uh, usually with lactic acid, um, in both the mash for our, uh, mash chemistry and then in the kettle as well. Do you have to do any additional food safety steps for this product versus, uh, standard beer in terms of, uh, do you do any additional testing or anything like that? Mm-hmm. We do uh, pathogen testing. Um, we do what's called a uh, pathogen positive release. So um, we'll produce the beer, we'll send it out for pathogen testing, and then um, as long as that uh, test comes back free of pathogens, we're good to go. 
Okay. Um, does that hold up your process very much or is that a fairly quick thing to do? It's, it's, it's getting quicker. It used to be a lot longer. I think the test used to take um, anywhere from three to four weeks. But now we've found a few labs that are down to, I think, about two or less. Now, uh, I've heard of some folks taking the approach of, um, of uh, I think Justin mentioned it on, on the first episode that we did, of uh, doing a arrested fermentation and then running that through DELC um, as a means to make the, the DELC less intensive, right? Because you're, you're sending less alcohol to it in the first place. That doesn't sound like what you're doing here if I'm reading between the lines. Um, are you producing two separate streams and then blending them together and or are you producing the arrested fermentation first and then dealking that it's i mean it's it's two different streams yeah yeah okay that's what i thought and that sounds like a a better uh outcome is more likely in that in that regard anything else you want to say about food safety or quality yeah i think it's it's just paying attention to what your ingredients are when it comes to quality too if you're adding back things that are fermentable um it's it could you could land um with the beer in package that is above your 0.49 or 0.42 abv for the na spec so just you got to be really careful when it comes to cleanliness yeah you know, you you mentioned that there's obviously a lot of lot of brews that went into this, and uh, a lot of work, especially around the mashing side. Talk about the number of R and D brewing trials it took to get from start to finish. Yeah, overall, and this was like a, a, about a two year process from idea to uh, finally out in the market and package. Uh, we did a lot of a lot of brewing. Um, I think we landed at about 88 brews in our research brewery and then scaled up to our 10 barrel brewery. And that was around 36 to maybe even more. Those are the 36 that I could find related to this trial, to this style. Um, and then for our dealking trials on that five hectoliter skid, we ran about 26 different um, times, different styles. And then once we finally had our production size skid, uh, it took about five runs to really dial that thing in. And nice. Tell us about the unexpected. What caught you off guard during this project? Yeah, the, this is uh, the unexpected learnings. I think is a is a, a big part of this. Um, where you know we're we brew with CeraVCA all the time. It's super prevalent in everybody's brewery uh it's really hard to keep it out <laughs> yeah or to, to to remember that you have to keep it out of these fermentations you know we're, we we take it for granted in that it outcompetes a lot of things uh and th- that's this is a situation where you don't want it to um beat out the the Ludwigi or whatever other yeast you decide to use um and i think that was one of the other things that was somewhat unexpected is that with the Ludwigi, we didn't have to pitch as much. You know, if you think about it, you're not fermenting to the degree that you normally are with an ale strain or a lager strain. So you don't need as much yeast. So the, the, the propagation cycle can be a little bit different. Um, and the, the fermentation velocities are different too. Like the, 
you could you could be done with this in 48 hours, little to no diacetyl form, formation and uh, be done. You know, like it's wow. it's a super fast process. And what you said a lower pitch rate, like give give us a ballpark, like how much lower? Is just like I'm talking like half or like a quarter or even even lower? Yeah, half, half yeah. easily. Yeah. Okay. Anything else that you got uh, tripped up by or that you um, that caught you off guard? I think I think the the other big thing was just learning a new skill uh, with the with the distillation portion. You know, like that's something I didn't really think that I would ever run into working at a brewery, but here we are. Here we are. I guess maybe sum up the results for us. Uh, what did you, what exactly did you end up with here? Yeah. So we ended up with, uh, two recipes for this style. We have a limited fermentation recipe. We also have a recipe specific for our dealc, and then the processes like the, that was a whole new thing. We have vacuum distillation with our dealc skid, and we also have more QA checkpoints. And then the results, I think, is really speaks for itself. You know, this this beer won a gold medal at GABF this year in the NA category. Nice. Um, and I'm stealing a line from one of my coworkers when I say this, but Jesse Hayes is 99.5% awesome and 0.5% ABV. <laughs> so, I like it. Yeah. Did, you, did you put that on the label? You should put that on the label. <laughs> we should. We should. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the themes from my conversation with Mitch on episode 266 was that it seems pretty important to add flavors back in after dealcoalization. I see malt beverage with natural flavors on the label of just a haze, so I'm guessing you agree with Mitch. I'm, I'm sure you can make some assumptions based on that. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, do you, uh, I'm wondering, do you dry hop both the Arrested Firm and the Dialk beer streams or only one of those? They're both dry hopped, yeah. Interesting. I would have guessed that you only do the, the uh, Arrested Firm and that the Dialk uh, is, is too rough on the dry hop to, to make it worthwhile. Well, the, the, the joy of the Dialk is that it's low temperature. It's under vacuum. Sure. So you're not getting that hot. You're... I want to say you're almost at like, you're only at like 90 degrees. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool and it's fast. Yeah. There's also a process built in with this where you capture what's called the aroma water. Right. Um, and that alone, like I would, I would drink that right off the tank. <laughs> it's, it is so good. So you, so your, your process does enable you to reintroduce that. Yeah, you can, you can, yeah, and yeah. at different levels too. The right. risk is that there is some alcohol in there, mm-hmm. so you're you could like, depending on how much you add back, you could you could risk being overspec. That was Aaron Bottens here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want to learn more, check the show notes for a direct link to Aaron's District Northwest presentation. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Can't stop, can't stop, can't stop.